Hello and welcome to the GLD podcast, Governance Uncovered, Local Politics and Development, supported by the Swedish Research Council. Today's podcast is the second in a special three-part series on migration. Last month we looked at Turkey's struggles with integrating Syrian refugees in Istanbul. This month we talked to Salma Musa, PhD candidate from the Political Science Department at Stanford University. Salma's research focuses on migration, conflict and social cohesion. Her recent work on Islamophobic behaviours and attitudes of British shock fans has been picked up by major outlets in the international press. Today's discussion focuses on her latest research, which looks at the relationship between Christians and Muslims in post-war societies, particularly at how tolerance and prejudice can be changed by interaction between these groups. This study has been recently published as a GLD working paper called Creating Coexistence, Intergroup Contact and Soccer in Post-ISIS Iraq and can be found on our website. You can find more information about Salma and her research in the description below. As always, this podcast is hosted by GLD director Ellen Lust. We hope you enjoy the show. So Salma, I want to thank you for joining us. You're coming today from the UAE, and I appreciate you taking time to to be with us. Of course. Thanks for including me in the series and for JLD's support of the project. Very welcome. Um, so I just want to start by by having you tell us a little bit about um, the contact theory that you're aiming to test in this in this piece, and you know why we think that can contact and under what conditions it might actually reduce prejudice. Sure. So the contact theory was first put forward in the 1950s, uh, and the basic idea is that contact under certain conditions across group lines can reduce prejudice, build friendships, and on the whole, improve intergroup relations. Uh, So there's a few conditions that are thought to be key for for contact to unlock tolerance. Uh, They're thought to be that the contact should be ideally equal. uh, So you should be at kind of an equal power status within the context of the intervention, even if you're not equal in society. Uh, It should be endorsed by communal figures or leaders. Uh, It should be positive. Uh, and it should be cooperative. So ideally, you'd want to work together for a common goal. And we've had a lot of research uh, showing actually that negative contact or very brief exposure where you don't have these conditions can actually create a backlash. So to sum it up, uh, positive and cooperative contact uh, should reduce prejudice over time. So what I did uh, in my uh, experiment in Iraq was to try to make these hold these conditions constant and try to make them as optimal as possible. Uh, and one natural setting for that is sports. So sports naturally are have a, have a fundamentally equalizing effect within a team. Uh, you're cooperating for a common goal. Uh, and we also got the endorsement of uh, local opinion leaders. So the idea was to keep these conditions ideal and then test it in this kind of extreme post-conflict environment uh, to see whether like under the, the ideal conditions in this setting uh, as like a proof of concept can contact work if we have the the ideal conditions in such an extreme environment. So can you tell us a little bit more about the particular environment? I mean, I think it's a fascinating take on it to to think about sports and to to use soccer as as an entry point to this. Um, But can you tell us a little bit about the community in which which you are sort of having um, basically groups play soccer? Sure. Uh, So this study was carried out in the Ninawa province of Iraq. So it's kind of jointly controlled. Some areas uh, are Kurdish controlled, some are Iraqi uh, central government controlled. And the communities I'm looking at are two 
communities, broadly speaking, that were uh, very heavily hit by the ISIS occupation. Uh, and the first is Iraqi Christians, uh, most of which were Syriac Catholics. And the second group was uh, Muslims, specifically uh, Shia Shabak, and also Sunni Arabs in this area, who were also displaced by ISIS. Uh, so these guys like live in the same towns. They were displaced during the same time and they returned at roughly the same time. So they had a similar experience in terms of displacement, um, but they live very different lives in terms of the kind of segregation and the lived experience of living in, in this area after the occupation, which really devastated social trust. And what was the nature of the relationship between these groups when you um, when you started the study? Uh, so I'd say not good. Uh, so in this area in general, there was tension between uh, tension in the Christian Muslim relationship even before the ISIS occupation. Uh, and a lot of that had to do with various Kurdish and various Ar uh, Iraqi policies that aimed at kind of playing around a little bit with how people identify their ethnicity. So kind of encouraging different groups to identify as Arab and then give them pieces of land which were encroaching on Christian, traditionally Christian areas and vice versa, kind of incentivizing Christians to identify as Kurds for some other, um, for some other advantages. So they were kind of stuck in this, like between these two powers and these two authorities in ways that kind of played them off against each other sometimes. Uh, and then at the same time, you have kind of the traditional like urbanization story where you have uh, poorer residents are in, in the Hamdaneya district of Minoa, which tends to be uh, Muslims, and they have kind of slowly been uh, uh, buying houses and buying land and moving into these more prosperous Christian areas. So that has also caused some resentment. Um, from the Christian perspective, uh, these are like traditionally Christian enclaves and the Christian presence in Iraq has been dwindling since 2003. And so this kind of perceived encroachment from a cultural perspective, it also has these political ramifications too, uh, in terms of like voting and changing the demographics. So you have, I'd say like on the one hand, like these political tensions, um, a, large, a large portion of which are a result of being kind of stuck between these two ruling powers. And then on the other hand, you have like this social tension, uh, which comes from urbanization. Uh, so I'd say it was not good even for the occupation, but then that really uh, devastated, I'd say, social cohesion in the area, uh, especially between Christians and Sunni Arabs, who are largely perceived to be ISIS collaborators uh, or supporters. So how did you decide to study this particular community? Uh, so on the, on the one hand, I've always had an interest in Christian-Muslim relations. So for the past, I guess, 10 years now, this has been uh, my area of research. Um, I guess I've always kind of been fascinated by the fact that um, Arab identity has kind of always had this Islamic component to it, or not always, but in recent years, it, there's a big piece of Arab identity comes from Islam. Uh, but at the same time, you have this indigenous Christian population who don't share that piece of Arab identity, but who are um, like part and parcel of the national and social fabric. Uh, and so I've always kind of been interested in how we can build bridges between these two communities, mainly because I see the preservation of diversity in the Middle East as being kind of a litmus test for democracy, a litmus test for development. Like, how well are we doing? You can kind of answer that question in, in some part by looking at how well minorities are doing, which is true in lots of cases, and I'd say especially in the Middle East. Uh, so that's kind of my background has always been in Christian Muslim integration, uh, and I'm Egyptian, so that's kind of one of the key case studies for this question. 
Uh, and then for the Iraqi community specifically, uh, this obviously I watched kind of horrified as the ISIS occupation happened and these Christians were kicked out of their villages and um, and Yazidis and other minorities had even worse done to them. It was an ethnic cleansing campaign. And so kind of watching this, I thought, okay, well, this is definitely going to destroy social trust in this area. And we know social trust is important for a lot of other reasons. Um, and so I felt like I was in a good position to uh, use my use my kind of scientific skills and background and interest in this to help alleviate some of this problem, even in some small way uh, in this area after after seeing kind of the human cost of that occupation. One of the points that you make in the paper and that you've alluded to here is the extent to which um, these kinds of difficulties might be um, changed or exacerbated by conflict, right? Um, both in terms of thinking about you know the relationship mm-hmm. between these groups before and after after ISIS, but also um, you know thinking about them in other types of contexts. Um, can you give me a, a sort of a better sense of in what ways you think either conflict does make a difference in terms of these relationships and, and the extent to which contact contact can be used to solve them, or maybe that it doesn't matter? I mean, what's your what's the relationship between con, contact and conflict in your view? So I think the conflict had, um, had several ramifications for intergroup trust, uh, one of which is, um, I mean, these communities went through this huge collective trauma and so this victimization and the narrative of victimization becomes really central to Christian identity and the identity of other minority groups that were targeted. So in terms of social norms, this just puts like a huge taboo on interacting with different outgroups who are perceived as being untrustworthy for good reason. Like this is completely understandable. Like this is not kind of the old fashioned prejudice that we think of maybe when we do similar studies in the U.S. on contact. This is like you know, very a very complicated and very um, very devastating situation that that took place. So I understand this distrust of other groups, uh, which is kind of instinctive, and it becomes ingrained in the group identity. Uh, and that's not even uh, touching on the fact that this kind of trauma on a in, on an individual psychological level um, might make you like more closed off to other experiences. You might have like PTSD. Um, like this is kind of, it becomes internalized in a lot of different social and psychological levels in ways that we don't like fully understand, but we know that it, it's not good for intergroup trust on the whole. Um, even if you have a shared narrative of victimhood. So even if you, other groups were also victimized, it doesn't necessarily mean that you'll bond over that experience. Uh, so where contact comes in uh, is something I think a lot about. So conflict, a lot of the time is very structural. And it seems kind of overwhelming to think about how we can solve the problem of conflict. Uh, But for sustainable peace, I like to think of it as happening as some kind of dynamic interaction between institutional and structural forces and grassroots individual level forces. And they kind of reinforce each other. So even though we can't do that much about shaping the structural sources of conflict, we can do something about the gra- what's happening at the grassroots level as researchers and as uh, civil society actors. And so uh, that's the piece that I wanted to, to, look, to look at more deeply. Um, one, because it's, more e- it's easier to control, but two, because I think you need to have this grassroots, these grassroots level interactions to reinforce whatever happens at the policy level. Uh, so that's kind of how I'm thinking about it as, those, as this kind of interaction between those two levels.
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, actually. That's great. Um, can you tell us what you what you did in the study? Can you give people an understanding of the study and the design itself? Sure. Uh, so I wanted to test this idea of positive, cooperative intergroup contact. So what I call meaningful contact. And so the research question is, can meaningful contact uh, build coexistence after conflict? And so to test this out, I tested out contact in the form of sports teams. For the reasons I mentioned before, they're equalizing, they're cooperative, it tends to be positive if we, if we design it in a way where it's an attractive um, endeavor. So what that pra- meant in practical terms was setting up some soccer leagues uh, in this area, in the Ninoa Plains area. So we actually set up four leagues in total. And what we did was we, we being me and the like local research staff and uh, with local NGO partners who are working with these displaced communities, uh, what we did was we approached pre-existing Christian soccer teams. So these soccer teams were made up already of uh, mainly displaced Christians, uh, and they were pretty homogenous. And so we set up these leagues and we invited them to join with the condition that uh, we have this like diversity mandate and we want to make sure lots of different communities are included. So some teams would have some, uh, so all teams would have players join them. Uh, we would assign them new players. Some teams would get fellow Christians and some teams would get players of other backgrounds. So that was where the randomization happened, was whether your team received three additional Muslim players or three additional Christian players, which was the control condition. Uh, So then these teams trained together and competed in these leagues for about two months, uh, at which point we measured their attitudinal and behavioral outcomes uh, right after the leagues, but also up to six months after. So a kind of a set of attitudes and behaviors reflecting uh, tolerance, trust, and coexistence. So obviously we all want to know, what did you find? (laughs) Sure. Uh, So what I found was that playing on a mixed team made you much more likely to vote for a Muslim not on your team to receive a sportsmanship award. It made you more likely to sign up for a mixed team next season. And it made you more likely to be training with Muslims who you encountered in the leagues or through the neighborhood six months later. And it also made you about 0.6 standard deviations more likely to say that you believe that coexistence is possible. On the other hand, I did not find any effects when it came to how people felt about Muslims more broadly. So not the guys encountered in the leagues, but kind of generalized attitudes toward Muslims. So I found no effect on your likelihood of visiting a restaurant in Mosul. So this uh, how I did this was I used vouchers to track uh, who was going to this restaurant. And this restaurant is in Mosul, which is like a Muslim-dominated city about 40 minutes away. And so I find no effect of playing on a mixed team on your likelihood of visiting a Muslim-dominated city. And I also find no effect on of playing on a mixed team on attending a mixed social event, uh, nor on attitudes that capture attitudes toward Muslims in, specifically. So the way that I make sense of this is that contact uh, after conflict can have a positive effect on behaviors and attitudes to do with people who you encounter on a personal level, in this case, the guys who you meet in the league, but it's less effective, or at least I find no evidence in this setting that contact can extend to more generalized tolerance and coexistence toward members of the outgroup who you don't personally know. So, and, and remind me of the sort of the time frame that you're looking at after the after these sorts of changes. Uh, so we actually look uh, up to six months after the intervention ends. 
No, because I think one of the things that, that struck me when I read this and I, I find very interesting and worth thinking about is that, you know, when they talk about things like attitudinal changes towards things like, you know, gay marriage or other kinds of social um, uh, intolerance, right? Um, they, they often mm-hmm. say that it starts by the fact that, okay, well, you know, my cousin is gay and I know him and, and he's a good guy. And then it, it sort of slowly takes, it takes much longer than six months for it to make a, a kind of more societal change. Right. So, I mean, one of the interesting things that I think that your your study raises is a question about if it's not six months after, you know, it may be that behavior changes and then slowly attitudes in a sense, you know, kind of catch up. Um, but it's I find your in group and your in group and out group or your internal and external um, your internal and external kind of division to be very much in line with these other sets of findings. Yeah, I think this is an excellent point. This is kind of like a measurement issue in a way, and it gets at a very fundamental question, which is like, what changes first, attitudes or behaviors, or at least what what are the different rates of change? So it could be the case that this more generalized tolerance just changes more slowly, as you mentioned, and that um, what I'm capturing are intermediate results, which is completely a possibility. And that could be exactly what's happening. Um, it's a really interesting question, like how do attitudes and behaviors actually relate to each other and like the different speeds at which these things change. It's an external and internal tolerance as well. Um, so I think this is like a question now for, for the next wave of this kind of research about prejudice reduction is like more long-term work and tracking attitudes and behaviors and internal and external tolerance, see how they relate to each other. Exactly. Are you able to follow these soccer groups as they continue or the, or the players that were on these teams? Uh, I was able to follow up up until around, I think my last check-in was around May of this year, of last year. So I guess it's been, it's been a while now. Um, the situation on the ground in Iraq is, is just pretty precarious. So like different permissions and access and access points to these different communities that changes all the time. But more importantly, uh, especially working with these Christian communities, is that there's been a huge exodus uh, in terms of asylum and seeking asylum abroad. Uh, so the populations of these Christian towns has just been uh, just been decreasing over the past year and over the past few months. Um, so it's been kind of hard to do a follow up in, in that sense. But we do have like a Facebook group and keep in touch in other ways. And so I'm hoping to do some, some qualitative interviews with a selection of the players who are still around, uh, hopefully over the next few months. That would be great. And you're right. I mean, and these other things, of course, always also change, right? I mean, people who have left then have an entirely different set of experiences that they're then fitting into. So it's, Mm -hmm. um, you know, this is sort of where, where beautiful research design hits the realities of conflict (laughs) and and the sort of the difficulties of being in the field. Um, which I have to say, you know, kudos to you. This is an amazing design and an amazing uh, study to begin with. It's it's really, really both nicely done, but it's also you. not an easy place to have to have done it. So, um, so that's exciting. No, not at all. But it helps to have good local partners. One hundred percent. I could not have done that if there wasn't the demand on the ground for having this kind of program, this kind of sports related program in the first place. How did you come up with the idea of of looking at soccer? So we actually, I had started out um, not using soccer. I first had the idea of doing like drama and literature classes. Uh, And the idea was like um, whether or not like being in the same classroom with people of different groups or if your teacher was from a different group uh, and then you're actually like reading narratives from the other perspective 
So it's almost like an empathy building and perspective taking setting. Uh, so where you're literally role playing in a drama class or you're reading these different literatures. Uh, and so what we did was in the IDP camps, we had advertised like these drama classes and we had already like, you know, set up a system to design the curriculums and got the teachers and we had almost no one sign up. <laughs> and this was like in an IDP camp where there was nothing to do and everyone was unemployed and still people were not interested. And so I'm like, okay, we need to go back to the drawing board. We need to have focus groups. Um, and that's what we did. We did a series of focus groups. And overwhelmingly, I mean, I have to say, mainly among the men, the the demand for when you just say, what kind of program can we offer? Everyone was like soccer. Like that was the main demand. Uh, and then from a theoretic perspective, I'm like, well, okay, well, this is perfect because this aligns with the, all the conditions of the contact theory. And there's a high local demand for it. So in terms of attrition and keeping people engaged like that, it seems to be a good, a good combination. And I love soccer. So it made me all the more excited to, to do the project. I have to say though, I also love art and art and drama. I mean, that sounds like a fantastic, a fantastic idea and a fantastic program. So this is of course a, a, a bit of a, a broader project. Your dissertation is entitled Conflict, Contact and Social Cohesion in the Middle East. Um, and I'd like to hear a little bit about how you see this fitting into the broader work and to the broader questions that you ask. Sure. So uh, I think my, my broader goal is to, is to answer the question of how we can improve social cohesion in the Arab world. Um, and there's a lot of different ways of doing that. And there's a lot of different tools, policy tools, but we don't really know how effective they are. We don't really know how they compare to each other. And we don't really know if they have a lasting impact on real world behaviors, especially after the intervention ends. And especially um, among like people in the household, people in the town, like are there still over effects? And those for me are the questions that we need to answer to test the viability of these different strategies on building social cohesion. So my dissertation focuses on uh, intergroup contact, but also some other tools like educational programming. Um, empathy building education and political campaigns and combines that with intergroup contact to try to uh, try to see how contact compares to other tools when the outcome of interest is social cohesion and also whether contact can really shape intergroup relations in a positive way in a lasting way um, and whether there are possible spillover effects. So one project I have is looking at political messaging um, and intergroup relations in Palestine and Israel, looking at virtual contact. Uh, another is looking at uh, is this Iraq project where we have intergroup contact in, in a post-conflict setting. And then the last paper uh, is an extension of this project actually in Lebanon, where we also run soccer leagues between uh, Syrians and Lebanese. And the second treatment arm there is to look at whether combining contact with empathy building education can uh, boost these effects. So this is the kind of research agenda at a, at a broad level is to look at contact and also other tools uh, for improving intergroup, especially interreligious group relations in the Middle East. And are there other key findings that you'd like to highlight for our listeners? These other projects are in the field, but I will say that um, a lot of what I've learned personally from running experiments is not always the outcome of interest. It's what you learn along the way when it comes to implementing. And one thing that really uh, that really struck me when implementing this in Iraq was how much social norms really matter for people even agreeing to participate in the study or to participate in an intergroup program in the first place. 
Um, so this is something I hadn't anticipated, but it, it really matters to get local leaders, like opinion leaders, uh, on board for them to kind of give the green light for people to participate in this. Because especially in these post-conflict settings, there's such a strong taboo against intergroup interaction that you need that kind of approval for people to even sign up for the program. Like it's kind of like a first order problem uh, and one that I think is is very interesting. And for lots of other reasons, we should get those community leaders engaged as stakeholders. Uh, so that's something I'd also like to look into of like, when do you get this permission and when do people give you the okay to participate in, in an intergroup uh, program when you have this kind of tense situation. So that's something I, I'd like to explore in the future as well. Yeah, and actually, I mean, it's interesting because the social norms aspect, I mean, when people think about the norms as being, you know, do you engage or, or not engage with the other group, et cetera. But um, what you're pointing to is also that overlap between sort of norm norms and other social institutions, for example, the extent to which there even exactly. are authorities who can then give you permission to, um, you know, kind of to violate, if you will, other norms. Right. So I think there's a whole set of questions which get back to the context mm. questions in a sense, right, of, you know, under what context do we both expect that um, sort of social cohesion is more or less difficult to obtain, but also the conditions under which you can actually implement these types of programs. Um, so thank you for sort of. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, that you put it better than I did. Thank you. <laughs> I'm, I'm writing on social institutions. Um, but again, I thank you for taking time to describe and, and explain your research. And, and as I mentioned earlier, some of it is now available as a working paper on the GLD website, um, but also there's other papers that are out and, um, and I'm sure much more to come. So, so thank you. Thank you so much. This was really fun. Thank you.